Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers. My name is Tanner, and I'll be one of your hosts today. I guess I'll just go ahead and bring in Taylor right away. So, Taylor, how's it going? Oh, it's pretty good. How are you doing? Glad to be here. I'm doing really well, sitting here in my office with the window open for the first time, so it's starting to be a little bit warmer. It's very windy, though. It's very windy here in Wisconsin. It's finally getting nice here. Went down to the Oregon District yesterday in Dayton, went to Dayton Beer Company, that kind of thing. It was like a beautiful day for that. Had some beers, played some shuffleboard. It was a good day. It was fun getting out and doing some of that stuff and enjoying some of the nice weather. Cool. We haven't done much this weekend. I think we watched the Brewers yesterday and, well, did a lot of note making for this episode. Had to do a lot of reading. But yeah, it's been good. Looking forward to this one. I was going to say, you mentioned the Brewers, it made me think of baseball and things that aren't good, which would be the Reds. I want to make it known that our official stance is that Phil Castellini should sell the Reds, because he certainly doesn't act like he wants to own them. Yeah. What are they, like 2-11 and 11 now? It's pretty brutal being a, a baseball fan in Cincinnati right now. It, it's rough. They're impressively bad right now. It is. They, they can't score runs. It's It's awful. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's a rough time to be a baseball fan in Cincinnati, but we will overcome. I think Cincinnati used up all of their sports luck on football season. Yeah, ironically enough, I despised the Bengals, so that was awful. With the Bearcats <laughs> and the Bengals doing so well, I feel like it had to take something away from the Reds. Yeah, it, it definitely did. So, <laughs> hey, the Bucks are up two one though in basketball. So, yeah, we got that going for us. Go Bucks! That's good. So before we jump in today, I guess I want to give a shout out to our two new patrons. Uh, I'd like to thank David and Kaylee for supporting the show. So big thank you to both of you. Yeah, definitely. That's always awesome. We mainly just we just really enjoy making the show. We're glad that people enjoy listening and, you know, feel like supporting us on Patreon. If you too, listener, want to get a little bit of extra content each month, you can head on over to patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. And you can sign up at the $3 or the $5 tier. Mm -hmm. Those tiers get you exactly the same material benefits. You get the same bonus content and everything. Just a matter of how much would you like to give us on Patreon? We like having options. Totally up to you. What was this month's uh, bonus episode? This month's bonus episode, we did the second in what we hope to be a series of uh, folklore-oriented stories, tales, whatever. We like to talk about that kind of stuff. Our first folklore one mainly dealt with keelboats and uh, and Mike Fink. Mm-hmm. And then in our last one, you talked about... What did you talk about in our last one? Uh, it was the Carol Deering. That's right. ghost ship off of Cape Lookout in Cape Hatteras. Uh, yes. And I talked about Alfred Bulltop's Storm Along. Yes. Uh, so check that out. If you want, want something a little bit different, We uh, we usually go into more maritime adjacent shipwreck adjacent type stuff rather than straightforward shipwreck stories Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a lot of fun so check that out if you're interested you can support us over on patreon honestly the best and easiest way to support the show is just listening and talking about it and sharing it with your friends um, if you're enjoying it that's the coolest way to uh to help out is that all of our housekeeping stuff to start out yeah i think so i think it's time to talk about some ships all right uh, so for the topic of this episode, we'd actually like to thank the crew of the Belafonte for contacting us through Instagram. This was a couple months ago uh, and suggesting this particular story as something to look into. Yeah, it was really cool. So this episode is about the sailing yacht Cheeky Rafiki. Best name of the podcast so far. It is a great name. 
and we'll have to say it numerous times on the episode. I wanted to lead this episode off with the Lion King intro, but I also don't want to get sued by Disney, and they will. So we're not going to do that. They would find us. Yes, they would. The mouse would find us. We don't have enough patrons to pay for that. The the 15 shares of Disney stock that I own probably isn't enough to pull that off. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the Cheeky Rafiki, and this is a an interesting episode for us because sailing yachts are a type of vessel that we've never discussed on the show. It's a good opportunity for us to to learn quite a lot during the research process and the discussion mm-hmm. process. Obviously, it's also a good opportunity to make mistakes as we're talking about these things, <laughs> but uh, we'll do our best where you know there might be some new terminology. Maybe we misuse things we, we maybe misunderstand a little bit, but we'll do our best. I was not at all shocked that like the world of yacht ownership is so much more convoluted and complicated than it probably needs to be. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It's just like racing horses and all that kind of stuff like it's not as simple as like owning a car right oh yeah for sure as i was doing this research and reading about these different types of vessels i had this like creeping feeling in my mind of like when is the america's cup and how do i watch it <laughs> it's like some something i've never thought about checking out in my life but yeah we'll, we'll get into it here uh fun fact about the america's cup i went down a rabbit hole yesterday about thomas lipton of the lipton iced tea fame Mm-hmm. He actually held the record for losing that like nine straight times he competed and didn't win. Hmm. That is just a random bit of trivia I read on uh, on the internet yesterday. So you're Thomas welcome. Thomas Lipton, the Buffalo Bills of the America's Cup. Yes. And uh, makes a lot of tea. Well, glad he's good at something. <laughs> the main source for this episode is the MAIB report on the incident. MAIB is the essentially the British version of the NTSB. The last time we used one of these reports extensively was the episode we did on the Solway Harvester. So as usual, this report raises questions about possible causes of the sinking and some preventative measures that could have been taken, but it doesn't in itself assess blame for the incident. Right. That's sort of the tack that we like to take on most of our episodes. We're not the experts. You know, we have a pretty outsiders view of a lot of these things but you know where there are the facts and the documented evidence we like to present those and make of that what we can getting into some background here cheeky rafiki was built in 2006 by chantier beneteau Mm. Uh, we'll just call them beneteau for the rest of the episode she was a bermuda sloop representing beneteau's first 40.7 type racing sailboats that doesn't mean anything to me yeah, I looked it up. There's multiple different classes. This is just a particular model, particular class. Does that just have to do with like size and everything? Of, of Size, the- uh, function, other design things. It seems like different features that they may have. Okay. There's a whole list of them that you can go through. And is that done more for like a competitive thing? So these things are grouped like sort of like auto racing. So there's more of a level. Yeah, later, later we'll talk uh, in a few minutes here. We'll talk about the Antigua Sailing Week and we'll kind of talk about the class competitions here. Okay. The class struggle, if you will. <laughs> so she was just under 12 meters in length. That's about 39 feet. Thank you. We don't use meters here. And she was built of glass reinforced plastic. <laughs> uh, that just that doesn't sound good. Which doesn't sound sturdy, but I'm I'm sure it is. I mean it's basically fiberglass, I guess. I'm I'm assuming it's something similar to fiberglass. Maybe it's like a lighter version of fiberglass. I don't know. No idea. So of main interest here in her construction is her deep fin cast lead keel. 
The keel is an element of the story that we will return to. Chekhov's uh, keel. It is a major, major element of the story. <laughs> Cheeky Rafiki was owned by Fast Sailing Limited. Good name. No frills naming for a, a, a sailing company that's going to race boats. And they're just um, telling you what they're going to do. Uh, her port of registry was Shoreham in the UK. Shoreham is on the south coast. It's it's near like Brighton, okay. if, if that helps. I'm resisting the American urge to say Shoreham. Shoreham. Yes. That's the ham that you eat at the beach. Yeah. The, <laughs> that's the one you got to fight the seagulls for. Uh, she uh, she spent her early years in skippered race-only charters on the south coast of England and wintered in the Brighton and Shoreham area, where she underwent her yearly maintenance. Okay. All of this was being done under the management of island charters. So one of the interesting little bits that I had to learn a little bit about reading for this episode was her ownership and her operating structure, which is not quite as straightforward as other vessels that we've looked at. She came under the management of Storm Force Coaching Limited in April of 2011. Mm -hmm. So with Storm Force, she would also be entered in the Atlantic Rally for cruisers, in addition to that, those typical coastal uses that she was being used for before. Okay. The ARC, or ARC, the ARC is a transatlantic yacht race. The 2021 version of it, and maybe all of them, I couldn't really find this information quickly. But at least in 2021, it went from Las Palmas in the Canaries to St. Lucia in the Caribbean. Okay. Uh, Chiki Rafiki competed in this race in 2011 and in 2013, and then spent each of those following winters in the Caribbean. So, like, the thing to remember here is the owner of this isn't actually doing any of this. Is, am I understanding that correctly? This is all being, like, leased out to someone else? Right. So there's, a, there's sort of an, an agreement in place where the owner of the yacht allows this management company to enter this vessel in events and use this vessel for, you know, charters and things like that. And then the owner also retains certain, you know, rights also, you know, being able to use it at times when it's not needed for these other events. So, so you're like Airbnb being your boat out. It's kind of what race. it seems like. Yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but that's that's may, maybe a good broad comparison to make here. So under an arrangement agreed upon in April 2013, the boat would be bareboat chartered to clients for a monthly fee. Okay. A bareboat charter, I did have to look this up, but it is kind of what the name sounds like. And a bareboat charter, only the boat itself is being chartered and nothing else. Uh, so okay. if, I, if I'm chartering this boat, I'm paying this fee and all I'm getting is a boat. I'm not getting a crew. I'm not getting provisions. I'm not getting any sort of equipment to go with it. It's it's just the boat itself. And that reminds me of a lot of the stuff that happens in the airline industry with like wet leasing and dry leasing, where in one version of that, like you, the same thing as this, like you only get the plane and in another version, you can lease it and like you get the whole crew and the plane, but they can operate under a different airlines authority. So you can like go into countries you wouldn't normally operate in essentially. Mm -hmm. And it, it reminds me of this where there's a lot of like little technical details about what you're actually being provided. Right. Uh, so under this arrangement, Stormforce coaching was responsible for routine maintenance and upkeep while the owner covered any, anything additional, any sort of extraordinary maintenance that came up that was required, any sort of significant damage uh, that would be covered by the owner. And then sort of your day-to-day -day stuff routine inspections, uh, anything that had to be fixed just from wear and tear, that was handled by Stormforce. God, you know there was probably so much back and forth and stuff like that. It's like 
it's uh what is it in the office with with Jim and Michael about the big picture and the day to day stuff. Yes. And arguing over what is this and what constitutes a, a, a big, extraordinary piece of maintenance. Um, so, I mean, essentially, it's, it reminds me of like renting an apartment. Like you've, you've yeah. got to change your own light bulbs, but if the heater goes out, right. that's on your landlord to fix. Yeah, great comparison. That's basically what it seems like is happening here. This is a funny detail. The report notes that Stormforce did this maintenance and they recorded these things with a, quote, clipboard-based defect reporting system. Yes. Which I think is just a way to say a piece of paper on a clipboard. Yes. In a fancier a, way. That is a that is a hundred percent what that is. Which honestly, we could make another office comparison here to when Daryl is doing his resume and he talks about moving like two billion units of paper material. <laughs> yeah. like He's counting individual sheets of paper. Pieces of paper. Um <laughs> anyway, that's enough office references for one episode. We'll see. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting detail. A clipboard based defect reporting system. Also known as a piece of paper. It sounds like everyone when they're trying to jazz up their resume. Yes. Or say you're trying to you're talking to the MAIB and trying to explain how you uh, recorded all of your super important information. The vessel was available for the owner's use, but was required to remain free to participate in important races and events such as Antigua Sailing Week. That sounds fun. It sounds like it'd just be a nice place to go and, and watch. I would just like to just to watch. I don't think um, I'd be much use in the actual sailing, but it'd be fun to watch. I sort of picture it. I know this might be a very specific reference, but sort of like a Formula One race kind of vibe. Like the whole, the race isn't even the most important thing. It's very much like hanging out and mingling and all these different people, you know, coming together. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is probably the same vibe. It's a lot of like well-to-do people from a lot of like different places all kind of coming together and doing rich people things. I could see that. I could definitely It's definitely like that. more like the sailing is sort of the thing that brings everyone there, but it's really just more of the event itself. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I'm guessing, but that's just what I get. That, you know, yeah, that's what we can picture this. in our heads here. Uh, so in 2014, Chiki Rafiki was scheduled to take part in Antigua Sailing Week, running from April 27th to May 2nd. On completion of the event, she would sail back to her home port of Southampton in the UK. During Antigua Sailing Week, the skipper of the vessel was Douglas Innes, the director of Storm Force Coaching. Okay. The head guy, the, the top banana here, is the one who is skippering the boat during these competitions. Among the professional crew during the event are Andrew Bridge and James Mayle, both age 22. Uh, before the first race, the vessel was cleaned and inspected. This process was repeated on Wednesday of the competition, and at no point was any damage or defect discovered. Chiki Rafiki performed very well in the competition. Uh, she actually won her class of yachts, that Beneteau first 40.7. And as we just mentioned, at the conclusion of Antigua Sailing Week, the yacht was set to sail back home across the Atlantic. However, there is going to be a change in the crew. Andrew Bridge, who was the mate during Sailing Week, he would take over as skipper with James Mail, moving up in turn to the position of mate during that transatlantic voyage. So two of the crew members who were participating in Sailing Week, they actually dropped out. This actually happened midway through the week. And no reasons mentioned in the report for why this happened, which I guess indicates to me that it's not relevant to anything. Yeah, I feel like if there was any sort of relevancy, that that would be mentioned. Yeah, so so to fill these spots, which again, this is partway through the event, so they, they need to fill this pretty quickly if they can. Uh, so to fill these spots, they posted an internet ad leading to Paul Goslin and Stephen Warren signing on. 
these two had actually been planning a transatlantic voyage on a similar boat. They'd been planning to take part, but that trip had been canceled due to some technical issues with the other vessel. So because they can't take this trip on this other ship, this kind of works out where Cheeky Rafiki needs two people and they both sign on. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I imagine this is a fairly small world, too. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't know those guys, you know someone that does. Like, it's not like it's a matter of, oh, these guys qualified. Like, I think you would probably know pretty quick. So I don't, you know, I never, I don't get those vibes here. That's like, oh, these guys don't don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where it seems like there's pretty good documentation on what skills people have and what qualifications they have, um, what they theoretically should know how to do. So it seems like it was a pretty smooth process of getting them signed on. The two crew members, they arrived in Antigua on May 1st and were actually able to join the crew for the final races on the following day, which was Friday, May 2nd. So Antigua Sailing Week wraps up, and so now they have to start thinking about getting home. After discussing some possible routes, you know, between Innes and the crew, Mm -hmm. uh, the decision was made to attempt the crossing of the Atlantic without any stops. It is kind of important to note the word attempt here. Right. Which is a small, but it is kind of a telling detail, I think, that it's included in the report. We'll talk a little bit more about routing later on. They decided to take this trip nonstop. However, it was agreed that if the situation arose, that they would stop in the Azores. I guess I'm just curious, like, what would necessitate them stopping? Is it slow progress and we need to get more supplies? Like, I'm kind of curious, like, what what's their bailout point there? The main factor is how much they have to run the engine. Okay. Because obviously this thing has an engine in addition to its sail, but you want to be sailing it as much as possible. But if the wind doesn't play along, then to make progress, you've got to run the engine. And right. that kind of is is one of the big factors is if if there's not, you know, sufficient or the right winds for you, if you have to run your engine for, you know, days at a time, you're going to need to stop over somewhere just to refuel, make sure you can make it home. Right. That makes sense. And I guess I'll just talk about this now. The two the two basic routes that are sort of agreed on to go from the Lesser Antilles to, to England, to the UK, there's a couple ways of doing it. One of them is to go across the Atlantic first to the Azores and then head north. Right. And the other is to go first north to Bermuda and then either head directly to the UK or from Bermuda to the Azores and then north to sort of minimize your time in the open sea. Right. Yeah, I would think you would, on a smaller vessel like this, I would think the less time just out in the middle of the Atlantic, the better. Mm -hmm. That's much less time for something catastrophic to happen and go wrong when you're, you know, miles from anyone who can help. But here they agreed that they would give this a shot at going directly. Communication would be limited to email, unless the need arose to use the satellite phone. The trip back to Southampton was expected to take 30 days. Cheeky Rafiki departed from Antigua on Sunday, May 4th of 2014. Because email was the main form of communication, we actually have a really good idea of what kind of information was being exchanged in the days leading up to the sinking. Yeah, that's actually really cool. You kind of have sort of like a black box, almost. Mm -hmm. Like, you know exactly what is being passed back and forth and... And what their responses are to things. Yeah, this is probably one of our only ones where where email has kind of been the dominant form of of what this communication entails. Mm-hmm. So on Monday, May fifth, just after eight thirty, all of the times I'm giving here are going to be in universal time or okay. what we used to call Greenwich Mean Time. 
So just after 8.30, the skipper of Cheeky Rafiki emailed the director to inform him of their position and request a weather update and routing advice. That's most of the communication that's happening. That's kind of why they have this communication channel established is so that the director who's on shore and has much better access to information, he can send updates about things like weather and what route the, uh, the crew right. should take. The reply was as follows. This is quoting directly from the report. You need to get some east and north in for the next two days. There's a band of SE4 coming in Tuesday afternoon to the east of you. It fairly quickly settles to E4, Force 4. I think for the moment, head northeast until you hit it, then head north-northeast or even close to north. There's then moderate breeze, E4, across the area you'll be sailing into for a couple of days. In the meantime, suffer the pain of the light stuff. That's so crazy. Like the routing and everything. It's like, oh, well, you're going to be in it, but, the, you know, go till you hit it and then go this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- it's kind of interesting how this has to develop this kind of like multiple layers of navigation. Uh huh. Following day, the skipper emailed a little bit after noon. He said position at noon universal time is 2127 north, 6039 west. Wind has been light and shite heading north. <laughs> Motored all of last night. So we're now able to sail. We have range of 900 to 1,000 miles under engine if wind keeps dying. Azores look highly likely. Any weather info from you would be great. So they're already in the mindset of like, we're going to the Azores. Like this has not been a pleasant trip necessarily. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, we've already had to use the engine a good bit. We'll probably need to use it more. We probably need to stop in the Azores. The email from Stormforce Coaching came about an hour and a half later saying, go north. Do not pass go go north. Do not collect 200 pounds. Go north. It's always funny when you're sending jokey emails, but then like later on, it becomes evidence. Right. Like it'd be a a lighthearted bit of attempted humor here if we didn't know how the story ends. Yeah. Like I think about that with my work sometimes like, oh, well, if this is ever like in a thing, like this this won't be as funny. (laughs) It's like, what if the last text I ever sent was like a meme? Right. (laughs) But anyway, the next email from the boat this is at 2045 on the same day, explained that they'd need to run their engine for a while to get through some time without sufficient wind to sail. Quoting here, looks like a day and a half with donkey 25% of our fuel gets us into decent breeze for a bit, then a short blast to get through the next light patch. The donkey is the engine, by the way. Uh, On Wednesday, May 7th, Stormforce sent the following email. It's all light today and tomorrow. It's worth cracking donk on for Bermuda and then refueling there. Cracking donk, again, is a reference to (laughs) running the engine. I love British people. Also, I keep using the term storm force here, the company. That is the director who's communicating with them. Okay. Um, In in the report, it's just referred to as storm force, but that's who we're talking about. I suppose if you're the director of a yacht thing, like that's sort of what you're supposed to do, right? Is manage the yachts. Right. And as we know, this is is a person who has experience sailing. So he kind of is the go-to person. And I feel like it's a little different when this person's telling you like, oh, you're gonna have to sail through something to get, you know, through it. Like he at least knows what he's telling them to do. It's not someone that doesn't have any concept of what he's asking of them. Yeah, this is presumably the same decision he would have made if he, if he were was on the skippering vessel. the boat itself. Right. Um, so on Thursday, May 8th, Cheeky Rafiki sent this response saying, we're sailing upwind at the moment. I can't see a chart for Bermuda, so don't really want to go there. Tank level is reading three quarters. So this is something that's discussed a bit later in the report, talking about preparation for things that might arise at sea. But when he says, I can't see a chart for Bermuda, 
he does literally mean that he cannot find the necessary chart to navigate to Bermuda, huh? which would have been very helpful information to have available here. Right. Um, I guess the, the assumption here when he says I can't see one is is that there should be one aboard. He just can't find it. I, I don't know f- for a fact if that's the case. Um, but regardless, he he doesn't feel comfortable navigating to Bermuda because it wasn't part of the original plan and he has no way to sort of change his routes comfortably to get there. Right. Skipping ahead somewhat to May 12th. This is Monday. Okay. Uh, Cheeky Rafiki updates Stormforce saying that they've turned east for home, having had one stormy morning so far with rain and force five wind. But overall, the temperatures were warm and the sun was shining. They were at 34, 24 degrees north, 56, 66 west. So fairly uneventful four days, basically, like the the normal things you'd expect to encounter. Yeah, kind of what they were expecting. They knew that there'd be some some weather that they'd get into, but nothing worrying at this point. But the following day, May 14th, it shows the first small indication of conditions that were heavy enough to be noteworthy of a mention in their next email. So he says position update at 10 universal time, 37 degrees north, 5205 west, 24 hour run, 176 miles. Just hit a big wave hard and it fixed the stereo. <laughs> it is funny that it's just kind of casually mentioned that they're in weather now. Yeah. And so like, it, obviously it's not seen as a big deal here, but it is enough to, you know, take up space in this email, right. um, which is something here. The skipper sends an email to Stormforce on the evening of Thursday, the 15th. And now things are getting concerning. He says, we've been taking on a lot of water yesterday and today. Today seems worse. I think starboard water tank has split. So that is drained. Checked hull and seacocks for damage, but can't see any. I'll go for a swim when weather improves in about 24 hours. It's crazy to think that he's just going to like swim down there and check on it in the middle of the ocean. Mm-hmm. I could never. Yeah. So after sending this email about taking on water, there's no more internet connections by Cheeky Rafiki. Okay. Um, as we've seen in previous episodes, to get these emails, you know, they've got to connect to the internet, download them, and then they can, you know, respond, but they don't have like a constant connection here. Right. So that being said, all of the next emails that are sent by Stormforce are never received by the crew. Okay. Um, so one of these contains instructions from the director to loosen straps for the life raft. Check EPIRB and SAT phone are accessible, etc. Have everything ready in case of worst case. So he's he is treating it like he is on the vessel. He's saying like you need to be prepared for these things. If I'm if he was there, he would have them prepared for. It. If we have to get out quickly, we can do that and let someone know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which I would imagine comes with experience of doing that, right? Like if you're just trying to hang on, you're not going to think of that. Whereas if you've done this so many times before you're like okay well we're ready we know Mm -hmm. what we're doing and it's a key detail there where he instructs him to loosen the straps for the life raft so on some of the ships we talk about the life rafts float free and deploy automatically Uh due to the way that this ship was categorized and coded in its category two that's not a requirement for the ship to have so the life raft is stowed i believe it was stowed under like a bench um, that you kind of like how a lot of boats store like life jackets, um, right? Same type of thing here. So he's instructing him, hey, make sure that that is accessible. Make sure the straps are loose. Make sure you can get it out quickly because you don't want it to go down with the ship, obviously. Right. Um, 
And then, like you said, you know, checking, make sure you have all the things you need to tell people where you are. Uh, a few hours after that email sent, there's a satellite phone call from Cheeky Rafiki to Stormforce. So they're not connecting to the Internet, but they're not totally cut off yet. They're still using the satellite phone. Uh, the skipper described a worsening situation with the water they were taking on, which they had verified was, in fact, seawater. Because one of the issues was had one of our other tanks, you know, cracked right. or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, what kind of water are we dealing with here? They were still unable to find the location of the leak. Couldn't find where this water was coming in. That just has to be a bad feeling. That that can't feel good. Basically, in the middle of the ocean, you don't have any ships around you, and you're taking on water, and you can't find where it is, uh, where it's coming from. Only about 10 minutes after that call ended, Stormforce emailed requesting the craft's position. So, as we mentioned just now, that email wasn't received. Interesting. Shortly after that, another call was attempted, but it went straight to voicemail. Uh, around a quarter to 11 that night, Stormforce decided to, to make first contact with the Maritime Rescue Coordination Center at Falmouth, and they gave them the vessel's last known position. At this point, you know, Stormforce is starting to get a little bit concerned you know, enough to alert the emergency services. Yeah, I imagine that like you kind of have to there's got to be like some internal procedures there cuz like how long do you wait? Like mm-hmm. you're not going to call them every time that something goes to voicemail, but you also like don't want to wait a day when you, you could have people out there looking for them. Mm-hmm. So just after 11:30, Stormforce sent a comprehensive email to Cheeky Rafiki saying, "I've spoken with Falmouth Coast Guard, who will in turn talk to the Yanks as you're within their SAR region." They have your sat phone number, email, etc. In terms of the leak, you need to focus on three things. Finding the leak, reducing the rate of ingress, and getting rid of water on board. Uh, The director suggests that the most likely place is the cooling system of the engine. And then he lays out a list of things to check and repair. Kind of a, a long list of make sure that this looks good, make sure this looks good. Some of it also is things kind of saying... When you get into port, wherever that is, make sure that you have them look at this, this, and this. Uh, make sure you check for these things. Make sure this is fixed. So he, he has a long list of things to address on the assumption that they can make it into port. Yeah, it sounds like he's pretty like proactive and is pretty engaged with it. I guess is as engaged as you could be in it, the situation. It's not like a negligence thing or him not caring for sure. Well, yeah, it's. I guess it, it seems that way. That's one way to, to look at it. I guess the other way you could look at it is he has this ready to go list of things that could be wrong with the ship. Is it because he knows that they are? That That is true. It is. It. I guess it's almost like when you tell on yourself because you're too knowledgeable. about. It's kind of the dark side of that. So either way, I have no idea which one is the more accurate reading of the situation. It seems like your instinct, I feel like, is my first instinct of he's just covering all possible bases. He warns the skipper to keep an ear out for the main bilge pump, which cannot be allowed to run dry. So in the episode on the duck boats, when we talked about pump systems, we talked about the Higgins pump that was in a lot Uh of those duck boats. Those could run regardless of whether or not they were actually pumping water and no adverse effects. But we said that those were also tied to the speed of the engine. With most pumps, you can't run them if they're not pumping water, actually. Right, yeah, you need that force of everything doing what it's supposed Mm -hmm. to do. So one of the last things mentioned in the email is the emergency readiness of the craft. Um, Quoting here, Needless to say, make sure everyone is wearing a life jacket at all times. Make sure the life raft and grab bag and water are ready. And make sure if things get worse, the EPIRB and SAT phone are to hand and the SAT phone is charged. That all seems like reasonable advice. 
So again, like we said with the life raft, in this case, not required to be something that floats free on its own. Same with the EPIRB on these vessels. Uh, it's something that where it's stored and how it's activated is different than some of these other coded vessels might be. So it's uh, not necessarily like the moment it enters the water, it goes off. Right. There's different requirements for those things. Okay. Finally, the director informs the crew that they're in U.S. search and rescue area, but out of range of aircraft. So in the event of an abandoned ship, it'd be up to merchant vessels to divert for a rescue. Uh, this is basically the uh, air gap from the battle for the Atlantic in World War II. Exactly. A little before midnight on the 15th, MRCC in Falmouth attempted to call Cheeky Rafiki, but only got voicemail. At 3.30 in the morning on the following day, this is May 16th, the skipper of Cheeky Rafiki was able to call Storm Force. The call lasted a minute and 42 seconds, but the director had trouble understanding the skipper. He was able to understand, quote, this is getting worse. The director advised the skipper to check email, which was acknowledged. So skipper says, yes, I'll check the email. Huh. Um, and this is the last time that the phone was connected to the satellite. That's um, so interesting. Because I had like, already assumed that they had gone down at this point. So they talked to them after they've kind of already lost communications one more time. Yeah, so this is kind of the final, final time that anyone hears from them. Let's get into the search and rescue efforts. Okay. So at 4.05 a.m. on the 16th, Rescue Coordination Center in Boston received a personal locator beacon alert, uh, followed by another one five minutes later with positional data. After consulting with MRCC in Falmouth, this was established to be the PLB belonging to the skipper. Hmm. Uh, the PLBs used here, they, they differ in several ways from an EPIRB in that these had to be manually activated and they had to be held above the water with the antenna in a vertical position. That that just doesn't sound overly helpful in a lot of the situations that might arise. In this case, it is indicative of the fact that, you know, if if you're getting one of these signals, you know for sure that this person is still out there. And they're still right. in a position where they need to be rescued. You know, they're still conscious enough. They're still active enough that they can be holding this thing above their head. They can be holding this uh, thing vertically and they're holding it out of the water. Yeah, like uh, that almost assumes that either the boat's still afloat or they're in a lifeboat. I mean, there's really not any other scenario where it's going to be working. Yeah, you can imagine, you know, treading water while trying to hold this thing up and stable is probably not very, uh, right. not very feasible. So in this case, I'm not totally sure about other types of these devices or other cases. The PLB would send out one initial signal, basically just indicating that it was turned on. Uh -huh. And then that would be followed four to five minutes later by a second one that contained actual positional information. So it kind of you're able to sort of home in on where this is actually coming from and go right. get this person. RCC Boston attempted another email to contact the ship for an update. This was actually responded to by the Storm Force director, um, who basically got copied on all of those emails. He informed Boston about his recent garbled call with the skipper and the fact that email had not been downloaded in quite some time. At this point, sending emails sort of feels like at work when I don't really want to deal with a problem and I really need to call the person to deal it with the problem. It kind of does, yeah. But I don't want to, so I send them an email and then like we just do it again for another like 24 hours of back yeah. and forth instead of me just picking up the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Sending an email at this time does seem like a it does seem a, a bit odd, but uh, that that may just be the protocol. Right. Um, 
At this point, RCC in Boston begins to assemble search and rescue capabilities in the area. So this included, you know, identifying ships in the area who could assist, you know, get into the search area, as well as requesting HC-130 long-range surveillance aircraft out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Which I guess we should note there, like when they talk about like air not being an option, they're talking about for rescue. Like, sure, like obviously we can fly right. planes and like find you, but like that HC-130 is not rescuing you. Exactly. At 629, the initial signal was received from the mate's PLB, followed several minutes later by the positional data. So now we have two of these that are going off and showing where they are. About eight minutes after this was received, this second one from the mate, uh-huh. the skipper's signal went silent. The mate's PLB indicated a position that was roughly a half mile from the skipper's last location. That's um, not great. So, I mean, this is obviously all conjecture of what's the situation here. Are they together? Is one of them holding his as long as he can and then sort of swapping out with the other one? Right. Are they even together? You know, are they separated, both trying to to hold these things independently? It's very difficult to tell what's actually happening here. Right. So search aircraft, they arrive on scene at 11 and they're able to identify some small pieces of debris that is you know presumed to be from Cheeky Rafiki. Aircraft from the U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Air Force, and Royal Canadian Air Force all took part in the search, along with three merchant vessels. The next day, the container ship Maersk Kure identified a capsized hull in the water near the area believed to be the Cheeky Rafiki, but the ship wasn't able to really investigate any further due to, you know, they're a pretty big ship. Trying to maneuver in the conditions to get close enough was difficult. I was going to say, I think this is one of my, like, favorite parts of these kind of stories and i always find so interesting is just how many different groups work together to do mm-hmm. this i mean you've got u.s coast guard u.s air force canadian air force but you've also got like random merchant vessels who just know that like that's what you do mm-hmm. and i always think that's very interesting that you know this Maersk vessel has nothing to do with any of this but they're in the area and they're willing to do that they're willing to help search for this i think i always think that's very interesting in these stories that how willing everybody is to to attempt rescue so with no signs of survivors and calculations indicating that none would be found search was terminated at 9 40 in the morning on may 18th so this is essentially two days later you know they call off the search a lot of math and you know cold calculations goes into that of you know how, how long should we really be looking for people not finding the life raft was a big factor in that, you know, saying that we're not seeing the life raft, we're not seeing anything indicating that it was deployed. So if they made it off the vessel, they're physically in the water. And that really affects how long you can reasonably expect to find someone. You know, there there was criticism of the Coast Guard's relatively quick suspension of the search. But again, that was done based on their assessments, saying that there, there's no way that the crew could have survived in these conditions yeah, it just seems like an unsurvivable event. And at a certain point, I mean, resources are a limited thing. Mm-hmm. You can't do it indefinitely. This isn't a situation where they're where they're having, you know, immersion suits like we've seen in some of our previous stories. Right. And, you know, if they're saying that we see no evidence of a life raft, they decided to call the search. However, after some pressure uh, from the UK government, I think it was specifically the foreign office um, that sort of lodged these complaints basically to the White House. Uh, The search was picked back up, or I guess more accurately, a a second search was started. This included aircraft from all of the previous organizations, plus the UK's Royal Air Force. Makes sense. I guess if they're the ones asking for it. Yeah, so 
So it also included nine merchant ships, the Coast Guard Cutter Vigorous, and the destroyer USS Oscar Austin. Interesting. And this also included actually a few other sailing yachts, so similar type vessels to Cheeky Rafiki. Yeah, that definitely makes sense if you're in the area and that's, you know, fellow yachtmen, like mm-hmm. you're going to try to support the Right. So on May 23rd, the Oscar Austin's helicopter located an upturned hull in the water, and the destroyer was able to deploy a boat with a surface swimmer who made a positive ID of the Cheeky Rafiki. A key detail noted by the swimmer is that the life raft was still on board the Cheeky Rafiki in its stowage position. Interesting. So that sort of assumption or educated guess that the life raft was never deployed ended up being accurate. And it appears that they never even prepped it. So they never even did, like, I guess they, ne- they never even got into a position where they thought that they would need it, almost? Yeah, it so too it, quickly. That, that could be the case where, um, you know, despite the advice that, hey, make sure this is ready, it could have been one of those things like, yeah, I'll, I'll get that in a minute. I'll get that in five minutes. And maybe you don't have that long. Well, and um, I think also you have to keep in mind, this is where, like, bridge and crew resource management comes in. You've got to triage your problems, but you have to be Mm -hmm. aware of all your problems. Like, yes, the water, the unknown water infiltration is your biggest problem, but you've got other things. You can't be so engulfed in that that you neglect other things that Mm -hmm. you should be doing. You've got to balance those things. So the second search attempt ended the following day in the early morning of May 24th. This is pretty much the final verification that we have very little hope. We have basically no hope of finding anyone because now we know that there's no life raft deployed. So obviously the... The big question here is why this is this is a story where we really do still have that question. A lot of times right. we talk about one and we know exactly what happened. But this one is still has has some questions about what exactly happened to this boat. You know, with no survivors, no direct evidence as to what happened. It's doubtful that we'll ever know 100 percent. But I will quote here from the synopsis portion of the MAIB report. It is concluded that Chiki Rafiki capsized and inverted following a detachment of its keel. In the absence of any apparent damage to the hull or rudder, other than that directly associated with keel detachment, it's unlikely that the vessel had struck a submerged object. Instead, a combined effect of previous groundings and subsequent repairs to its keel and matrix had possibly weakened the vessel's structure where the keel was attached to the hull. It's also possible that one or more keel bolts had deteriorated. A consequential loss of strength may have allowed movement of the keel, which would have been exacerbated by increased transverse loading through sailing and worsening sea conditions. Interesting. I had to look up what transverse loading was, basically just one of the forces applied um, Uh to the vessel. I looked that up and read about it on Corrosionpedia, which is a thing. Anyway, if you look at pictures of this, um, so say if you go on the Wikipedia for Cheeky Rafiki, there's two pictures that it shows of the vessel in the water. One of them uh, is a very, very close up picture, and one of them is zoomed out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what that really shows you is the it's the hull of Cheeky Rafiki. And it wasn't evident to me right away um, until I started reading the story, but it's missing something in that picture. And what it's missing is the keel. So the way that this worked basically is that hull sort of you know fits together with the keel, kind of the big fin that's on the bottom of these racing style yachts. And that's the thing that provides all the stability. Right. Um, and that's what keeps it not capsized. 
But in this case, you can very clearly see like the discoloration on the bottom. You can see that the hull has basically just ripped off. Right. Uh, you can see where the bolts go in. That was one of the ways that this was attached. The rest of this thing, the surfaces were basically just glued together. Um, obviously, very, very super strong industrial glue. But then you've got these bolts hold to get on too. So the idea here, you know, why this becomes so important is if anything happens to the keel, if it starts coming apart, the bottom of that is not necessarily designed to be watertight. Right. Yeah, because why would it, right? So when you start wondering where this water is coming from, it's a good indication. Maybe there's a problem with your keel attachment. Well, and essentially at that point, if you had known what that was, like that's the time to call for rescue, right? I mean, that's not a, mm-hmm. I don't believe that would be a fixable issue. Right. Um, that, yeah, it seems like a very, very major, major issue. So there's that. And then, of course, if the keel detaches entirely or even partially, that throws off the entire balance of the ship. It's not going to stay upright on its own. Right. Uh, hence, all these pictures, why they show the keel or the hull floating upside down. So, yeah, that ends up being kind of the the accepted story of what happened. You know, for, for one reason or another, the keel came detached. Why that happened is another question that warrants kind of the next part of the investigation. But just because of the way that the ship was found, it's very obvious what happened. It doesn't have right. a keel. So that section, it mentions groundings. And this is referring to a few instances where the boat ran aground during its career. In August 2007, Chiki Rafiki had a, quote, light grounding in Stenswood Bay. Um, the matrix, so the like kind of the part that, the, that attaches, uh-huh. um, it was hammer tested to identify detached areas and repairs were completed that September. Please tell me the hammer test is what it sounds like. Uh, what do you think the hammer test is? Uh, you hit it with a hammer. That's exactly what it is. Um, hammer test is what it sounds like. It's literally tapping the matrix area with a hammer and listening for a change in tone. So if you know what you're doing, you can you know hear where it's fully attached and where it might have come apart. That feels like an establishing shot of a movie to establish that someone is an expert at like <laughs> construction. Like they just come into the scene and like tap it with a hammer and tell you where your problem is and this walks away. It seems like a method that would be like maybe very useful if you had a lot of experience, but it seems like it'd be hard to learn. Yeah, like I think you definitely just have to like be in that scene and learn from people that just know how to do that. Yeah, so that was kind of the the way that these are constructed. There's no real easy way to to examine this. Uh huh. And that was sort of the accepted method of testing to see if you had a, a partial detachment of the keel. Like most problems in life, just hit it with a hammer. Hit it with a hammer. To a man with only a hammer, everything looks like a yacht. Uh, (laughs) So she grounded on the Isle of Wight during a race in 2010 after dropping into the trough of a wave. So this was interesting because it kind of shows what kind of waters these these boats are racing in and how shallow that it is sometimes if, you know, just going down into the trough of a wave grounded this thing, at least briefly. So in 2011, she had a light grounding during a training event. Two light groundings were reported in the two years prior to her loss. And these actually occurred in a shallow patch on the approach to Stormforce Coaching's Shamrock Key Marina. Oh, um, awesome. So they had like a great spot for this just right where they operated. Yeah. So this is like a known spot. Like, hey, this is really shallow. You might ground a little bit here. Um, Interesting how common it appears. Like it's not like that notable right. of an event. And that was sort of an enlightening thing reading about this. There's a whole conversation sort of industry wide about, you know, attitudes toward grounding. And how serious to consider it and what constitutes a serious grounding. And 
So they use that term light grounding, which to someone with no boating experience sounds a bit oxymoronic. Right. But, you know, there's a reason that they use that term. Someone's definition of a light grounding might be very different from someone else's. It might be a combination of some of the following criteria. But here's some of the definitions for what a light grounding is uh, taken, uh-huh. from, taken from the report. Uh, this could be a grounding where the vessel doesn't stop. So obviously, if you run it up on the beach, it's fully grounded, it's stopped. Uh, but maybe if you just skip it a little bit, it's a light grounding. Right. Um, another definition, uh, an instance where the vessel bounces on the bottom, very similar to the first definition here. A grounding where no one on board was knocked off their feet as a result. <laughs> Some of these feel more subjective than others. Yeah, like that one to me seems very dependent on a lot of other factors. Like, who's on the boat? Um, right, yeah. How like, prepared it, are they? <laughs> like this, this just feels very arbitrary. Yeah. Another is where the vessel grounded at slow speed. Um, so obviously less force being exerted. And another is where the vessel grounded on a soft or sandy bottom. So those are various definitions, different factors that could go into someone determining that this was just a light grounding. What's interesting there is you could like cherry pick how you want to measure it for each event and make make it so that that you've never had one. Right. Uh, that's that's exactly right. You know, if you if you hit a maybe something very, very hard, but the vessel doesn't get stuck, you could say, well, that was just a light grounding, even though it may have done significant damage, especially uh-huh. to the attachment of the keel. Right. After these light groundings, because as their name indicates, they're not very serious. They didn't warrant full inspections of the keel attachment. These weren't usually carried out if the grounding was considered light. You know, however, with that wide range of interpretations, it's very easy to see how a problem, kind of like you were just saying, could develop unseen. Right. If this isn't being thoroughly inspected and repaired on a regular basis. If the cumulative force of four light groundings has caused the same potential damage as one rougher grounding, I'm kind of in the same spot if I don't right. fix it. Exactly. So in addition to previous groundings, she also had had previous keel detachments, um, or at least one previous keel detachment. In 2011, when she was being inspected for her Category 2 coating, a detachment in the forward section was detected and repaired, after which her small commercial vessel certificate was issued. Interesting. So this was while she was being inspected for her certification. They inspected it. They found, oh, you've got a little detachment here. They fixed it, and then they got their uh, their Category 2. Right. Um, so the Category 2, uh, all of that coding, I want to talk about that quickly because it it's kind of a big part in the report, and it's a big part kind of in understanding these sailing yachts as a whole, something I had to do a lot of reading about and still probably don't understand very well. Cheeky Rafiki at the time of her sinking, was actually past due for her inspection for recertification. Uh-huh. However, with the ship being still in the Caribbean, Stormforce asked for an extension, just mainly owing to the cost of having the survey done in the Caribbean. It's always about the cost. <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of one, one spot where we can start to see the beginnings of what will later become the legal elements of the story. You know, wanting to put off this inspection and recertification to save money. Go ahead. Rules and safety are like always good until they cost money. Right. Um, exactly. We've seen that before. This is not new. How much money? I don't know. I don't know what figures are being debated here. But the idea was it's too expensive to do it here. Just bring it home and we'll get that inspection done in the UK. Uh, this was denied 
on the grounds that there were no extensions permitted under the SCV code, the Small Commercial Vessel Code, which sounds like a good thing. Why would you right. Why would you make an exception for something involving safety? Hence, Cheeky Rafiki's Category 2 coding had expired. This coding system that I've kind of mentioned, it goes from 0 to 6, with a Category 0 vessel is basically licensed for unrestricted commercial service in any body of water, any distance uh, from shore, any distance from their ports. You can go anywhere in a commercial capacity. So you're talking like your big freighters, like what you think of when you think of like a commercial shipping vessel. Well, kind of. This this more covers just small vessels. Okay. Um, there might be an equivalent system for larger vessels, but this one is more concerned with like your sailing yachts being used in a commercial capacity. So so if I'm chartering out my vessel, uh-huh. um, where can I take passengers, basically? Um, so or, if you're one of those Russian oligarchs and you got one of those big <laughs> Yeah, that, that might apply uh, more to this. I don't know how those are coded. Uh, so basically, if I have a category zero coded vessel, means I can take passengers, say, on an excursion, and we can we can sail all around the world, and there's no restrictions on where I can go or how close I need to be to shore. Whereas, say, the opposite end of the spectrum with a Category 6, that's a vessel that can only operate commercially within three miles of its departure point. Hmm, that sounds like a duck boat. Essentially. I mean, it's the kind of thing you'd maybe take out on like a harbor cruise or something. Right. Um, so you have very little things you can do with that. And so with Cheeky Rafiki being a Category 2, um, you know, towards the upper end, in a commercial capacity, Cheeky Rafiki was only allowed to operate uh, up to 60 miles from a safe harbor. Um, Interesting. And this is kind of where some of the loopholes and technicalities come into play. Because was she technically not a commercial vessel when she was going home? This is the argument that's made by the director of Stormforce. As he's exchanging these emails with the certification body, they're basically telling him, you can't sail this vessel to or from a race because that's a commercial capacity of this vessel. You can't do that across the Atlantic because then you're violating your your distance requirement, basically. And then the counter argument was, well, I'm not technically using it for that right now. It's just a privately owned vessel when it's in transit. Yeah, that feels very loophole-ish. I mean, like, why why is it there? Why is it in the Atlantic to begin with? There's an exception that you can basically you can violate the the distance thing if you are going directly to or from an event. And the certification body, I forget which one it is, they basically said, yeah, that exception exists, but that means like going from the port where you have it to the event. It doesn't mean right. crossing the Atlantic Ocean. So there's a lot of details to that. This I, this has kind of been, I know, a rambling explanation of it. But that was an interesting part to read in the report. You can read more detail there, um, probably better, more succinct explanations. But essentially, the differences in the categories, they basically have to do with emergency equipment required on board, as well as the qualifications of those manning the ship. Obviously, if your ship can't go, if, if you aren't going more than three miles from harbor, you don't need as much of the, you know, rescue survival equipment. You know, you don't need an EPIRB on your vessel. Um, right, right. Probably different requirements for what um, qualifications people need. For example, on the Category 0, if you're making these unrestricted voyages, you need, I believe it's two people who basically need the full Yacht Master certification. So essentially two people that could run the show if they had to? Yeah, so you've got a skipper and you have someone that the skipper can consult who has 
an approximately equal level of knowledge. Uh, so all in all, the long explanation there to talk about categories and coding and it being, you know, past due for its inspection, the ship hadn't been professionally inspected in over three years. Huh. And this is, you know, we, we know that there have been grounding events in those three years. Right. In terms of sort of aftermath, what comes of this? So in terms of conclusions and recommendations, the report makes, you know, several recommendations dealing with inspection, documentation of maintenance, uh, the cumulative dangers of even light groundings and emergency readiness. One of the big things here is is basically the awareness of groundings and the cumulative effect they can have. You know, not underestimating something just because it's a light grounding or not allowing this to happen multiple times without a thorough inspection. Um, I'll kind of skip through that stuff. There, There is some criticism of the report in this regard because there's very little recommended in terms of the inherent safety of the design itself. Right. Yeah. Like, is it just a bad design? Uh, so quoting here from John Harry's on his website, attainable adventure cruising, kind of just a reference site for yacht and sailboat related things. He says, quote, the ballasted keel of a sailboat is the Marine equivalent of a safety of flight item, an item that simply must not fall off for the expected service life of the boat. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Saying how, you know, this this needs to be treated as an intrinsic part of the boat. The boat can't sail without it. So right. why are we treating it as a sort of acceptable, disposable thing? You know, his his argument is basically, you wouldn't fly in an airplane if there was, you know, a little chance that the wings would just detach every once in a while. Yeah, like... The- there's acceptable risks in anything and then there's unacceptable risks and this appears to be an unacceptable one like this is not an outcome that should even be possible Mm -hmm. yeah like the idea that the keel can just detach from this and it's and it's not an unheard of thing is concerning right um so as we wrap up here this is one where we can discuss some of the legal repercussions uh, so shortly before the MAIB report was published in 2015, Douglas Innes, who was the director of Stormforce, he was charged with four counts of manslaughter by gross negligence. Interesting. Um, the rationale for this charge was Innes cutting out maintenance in order to save on costs. That seems like kind of a very general term, you know, just cutting corners on maintenance. But we do know for sure documented evidence that this inspection was put off for the reason of saving money. Um, that could just be a microcosm of other things that are happening. Um, Interesting. Uh, so ultimately, Innes was not found guilty of manslaughter. The jury could not reach a verdict on that. But Innes and Stormforce were found guilty of operating a vessel unsafely and violating the Merchant Shipping Act. I mean, that feels fair, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm more or less in agreement here that manslaughter seems harsh, but at the same time... Yeah, I like no, I don't. I have know, no like, connection the, or intimate knowledge of the case. Um, definitely, you can see negligence involved here, and uh-huh. I guess you know saying, "Well, I didn't know that would happen," uh, shouldn't be a good excuse. Yeah, and like I don't know what else tied up in like the charge of manslaughter in the mm-hmm. you know United Kingdom like judicial system. Like right. there could be like certain points you have to prove that may not be provable in this case to mm-hmm. even establish manslaughter as an option. Right. Um, but, I mean, I think you could probably establish some negligence and safety violations 
and especially violating the Merchant Shipping Act. I mean, there's got to be some clear cut things in there. It's like, yes, you were out of line here. This is something that we can punish you for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems fair enough, I guess, as the non-legal expert that I am. Yeah. Um, So for this, Innes was sentenced to 15 months in jail. Uh, The sentence was suspended for two years. I didn't see what ultimately came of that. It seemed like he was not serving time for it, Um, which surprise, surprise. Stormforce was fined 50,000 pounds and is actually now permanently closed. Um, If you if you Google them now, it shows up on the Google Street uh, map thing and it shows that they're permanently closed. (laughs) They do have really good reviews, though. (laughs) It's interesting. Like this whole thing is very interesting, a kind of a glimpse into this world. And the important thing to remember is they're probably not the only one doing these things. Like I, I highly doubt that they were that much more egregious than anyone else in some of these violations. Well, yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to also as sort of a mitigating factor. You know, you don't want to get caught up in while everyone's doing it, but at the same time, it, it does truly seem like the discussions around this and, and the discourse show that this wasn't an issue that was seen as a serious one. You know, the idea right. of the cumulative effects of grounding and, and, and what needs to be done with these uh, boat designs. So I guess to that extent, one could be excused, but at the same time, there's clear violations going on here where things are being put off or things are being avoided purely in the interest of saving money. Yeah. For something that is at the end of the day, like a sport for rich people. Yeah. Like for what, like, like what, like what was it all for at the end of the Mm -hmm. day? How much did that save? That's, um, yeah, I'm glad we did this one. And I, the smaller ones in terms of just the amount of people involved are a very different thing to research and present just because it's small enough to the point where, you know, you, you know, everyone's name who was on the vessel. Um, you, you have a glimpse of um, a very small glimpse, but you, you more or less know who this was. Whereas, you know, some of our, our bigger ones we do, there's just no possible way to, you know, take in all that information. So with these, you know, there, there is a kind of a different sense in presenting it and researching it. Yeah. There's a bit more of a narrative. I feel like in stories like this, even in the official documents, cause there are so few characters mm-hmm. and we start to realize like, Oh, Hey, the guy from Stormforce, he's got jokes in his emails. You know what I mean? Like things like mm-hmm. that. Like you start to kind of get a little glimpse into people's personality and, and how they approach things. And you do almost become attached to them as characters. It's, it's different for sure. Yeah. Even the way that the report's written is different, you know, whereas a lot of reports will just refer to people by their position. Um, you know, able seaman one, uh, you know, mate number two. Yeah. So it is, it it is a bit different of an experience, but yeah, I mean, that was, that's the kind of story that I I hope that we can continue to tell. We, we appreciate getting those kinds of story suggestions from listeners for sure. Uh, It was a good opportunity to learn a story that, you know, I certainly didn't know anything about and also just kind of explore a, a topic, uh, an area of, you know, sailing uh, vessels that I was completely unaware of. For sure. Yeah, this was a fun, this was like a fun change up. This is a fun, different thing than just another ore freighter or a passenger vessel. It's a, it's a unique experience, like mm-hmm. learning about this stuff. Yeah, I guess with all that, we'll just do our, our final sign off here. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We're on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast, I think. Beyond the breakers pod. Yeah, podcast. Yeah, it is podcast on there. And then we do have a, Email that's beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. Yeah, beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. 
Again, you can check us out on Patreon if you want to support the show. Check out some of our extra material. Also, while you're at it, give the Belafonte a follow uh, on Instagram. Yeah, uh, for sure. At aboard underscore Belafonte. They've got some cool pictures and videos of the stuff that they do. Um, and I'll share a link to one of their YouTube videos on the show notes. Nice. So with all that, I think we will sign off here on this longish episode. And we'll be back next week with more content for you. So take care, everyone.